Welcome to Fashion in Conversation at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Please welcome your host, Kinvara Balfour. Hi, everyone. Thank you all for coming. Thank you so much. What a great crowd. Um, I have so much to talk to Nick about. I kind of feel like we just have to get going very, very quickly because he's a prolific photographer and does so much else. Before I welcome him on stage, we're just going to take a look at one of his many incredible films. and web pioneer Nick Knight. Welcome. This is a big moment for me. I've wanted to interview Nick for a long, long time, so I'm really Thanks very honoured and I'm very excited this is happening, so thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, there's so much to talk about with where you have started and where you're at now. Right. So I think what we should do is really work in chronological order. Okay. I'll try. I'm not very good at that. I'll help you. Um, and we've got some slides coming up of some of your work as well, which okay. we're going to see while we talk. So I really want to talk about how you began. And I did read that you wanted to be a medic, a doctor in the beginning. Yeah. And how did you go from that decision to being the photographer that you are today? Um, the decision was really made for me. Um, basically, I, like most kids, grew up not really knowing what I wanted to do. Sort of drifted through my teenage years, trying different things out. My mother always said, oh, you should be a doctor, so... Because your father was a psychologist. My father was a psychologist, my brother was a physicist, and my mother was a physiotherapist. Okay. So, so you um, were very healthy? Something like that. Not really, no, but at least um, I knew a little bit what was going on in my mind. But um, anyway, so uh, through parental guidance, I was, went towards medical school. I, my, most teenagers, I didn't do much work, and therefore didn't get into medical school, and then end, ended up going to study human biology at Chelsea College, University of London. I got there, realised I didn't want to be there, had applied to Bournemouth and Poole College of Art, more or less as a joke, to be honest, um, the year before, and uh, I spent a year at Chelsea basically not doing any work at all, got chucked out at the end of the first year, and went and took my place at Bournemouth and Poole College of Art. So the decision was really made for me, really. I didn't sort of, um, I didn't have to sort of find out what being a doctor was like and then give it up. It was actually, I never got there. Okay. But however, ever since, I've always had a slight regret that I didn't do something that perhaps you know, might have been more worthwhile or more you know, benefit to society. One can argue that being a fashion photographer is a little bit one of those things that's a bit hard to live with. But. but I would say with your work, there is a precision about it that possibly is the same as a surgeon or a doctor and a, and a, a sense of kind of understanding the mind rather than just, just outside appearances. I don't know if that's yes, something I mean, that I guess you... I approach my work in a slightly scientific way. 
Um, by that I mean that in science you look at trying to understand the problem. You don't think of the answer beforehand. You investigate what's actually there and see what's there and try and look at that. I guess I approach my work in that way, so there's some similarity there. And did you take lots of photos as a child? Is something, is no, something you did? Um, no, I didn't at all. But you have to think, yeah, I'm now 56. 56, 56. So I was born in 1958. The camera wasn't available as it is now. I mean, you know, one family would have a camera. So my father had a camera in our household. Um, and occasionally on Saturdays, I was allowed to borrow it and take it off to photograph what I wanted to do. But it really wasn't available. I mean, I, l I was doing a project on punk a little while back. I was doing some research into it and looking at all the old pictures of punk. And there's actually very, very few. If you look at the pictures of The Clash on stage or Sex Pistols on stage, and you realize they're all taken from on stage because none of the audience, unlike tonight, had a camera. Right. So, of course, you go to a concert now, the whole audience has a camera. But in those days, the only people that had a camera were the people actually, you know, the sort of press people, the music magazines. So cameras were much, much less available and much less widely used. They were still quite a sort of, you know, a precious thing. So interesting. I'm going to talk about that more with Show Studio, about the kind of the value of images today in a second. Right. Um, so you left Bourne and Pool, Bourne and Pool, uh, what was it? Bournemouth, Pool and Bourne. Bournemouth and Pool. Bournemouth and Pool, College of Art. Okay, and how did you, then you started working for ID? Or you did lots yes. in between? Well, n no. Um, I started working for, when I, w I went to Bournemouth and Pool in 1979. Um, and in 1980, The Face started, the magazine The Face started, and ID magazine started. Um, and so I started working for them whilst, whilst I was at college. So I also started doing a series of photographs of skinheads. That's the first thing I ever did. That was a book you did. That was the first book you made. Yes, that yeah. was the first thing I did. When I got to Bournemouth and Pool College of Art, I signed in and then went back up to London and continued photographing skinheads, which is why I've been doing an ACAS before I got there. Okay. So. Why did that interest you? Ooh, that's a long um, answer. Uh, interesting for lots of reasons. I like skinhead girls, was one reason. Um, I like the music, it's another reason. Um, and also I thought that the way I'd understood skinheadism and uh, the way I saw it was very different from how perhaps it had been portrayed. So I was interested in just finding out. And of course, it's a sort of rites of passage thing that people don't often have these days. You know, we actually have to find out who you are, what you'll do in a situation. I mean, that was much more current, sort of before when people were, you know, sent into military service or whatever it is. But now you just, the transition from child to adult is much more gradual and much less defined. So I think in, inside me I was searching for some sort of rites of passage, some sort of you know, way of finding out who I was as a person. But that's all looking back at it 40 years later at the time, it just seemed like something I wanted to do. Okay, so after that, after the skinheads, you then, I think you did a, a big job with Yoji Yamamoto, which is where you kind of yeah, really... That, yeah, that's a quite a long that, time in between. Was yes. that a long time in between? Okay. Skinhead was done in, started in 1979, I finished it in 1980. Um, it was published in 1982 as I graduated. Then I started work, when I left college, I worked mainly for the music press. Um, working for the New Musical Express was my uh, newspaper. Um, and they would send me to go and photograph people under the kind of worst conditions. So you'd be sent to photograph somebody who you vaguely knew who they were in some hotel bedroom in Earl's Court, and they vaguely knew who the Music Express was. And, you know, so it was a kind of... But, it, you know, you learn and you forge relationships, and I met lots of people through doing that. But mostly my relationships was through ID Magazine. ID Magazine was just starting at the time, and their ethos, their, their raison d'etre was, for, you know, people are fantastic how they are. People on the street are worth looking at, are worth... You know, actually sort of documenting, you know, the most exciting things in fashion happening in 1980 was what was happening on the streets of London, not was on the Paris catwalks. You know, that was where the fashion was. So that's really the magazine that I sort of grew up with. And so the first two or three, no, three years, from 82 to 85, I worked almost constantly for ID magazine, um, sort of interspersed with a few odd record covers. Um, 
And then in 1986, the Japanese designer Yoji Yamamoto discovered my work, and I worked for him from that, from that point for the next three years. Okay, and fast forward that over the following decade or more, and we're going to start, if we can start with some of the photographs. So you've worked for pretty much every magazine in the in top title in the world. You've worked with every. Have you have you worked with every name that you would like? That's a question I would like no. to ask. Is there are there people that you haven't shot yet who'd like to? Yeah, shot I mean, with every, a camera, by the way, not with a gun. Um, yeah, I mean, everybody. I mean, everybody's interesting. You know, okay. Everybody has something to say. There are thousands and millions of people out there who are all really interesting. Probably all of this audience have got stories and things to say, and all in the right place, the right time, would yeah. be people I want to photograph. Yeah. You photograph Queue people. Up afterwards, everyone. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you photograph people. You because people are inherently interesting. Yeah. It's the interest you put in them. So yeah, there are thousands, millions of people I haven't okay. photographed that I would love to. It's a rather okay. broad answer to your question. Yeah. I expect you want me to say yes. No, I'd I love thought you photograph. might say the Queen or you know um, yeah, someone like that. But yes, of course. As well. Of yeah. course, as well, because she's another yeah. person and people are interesting, so yeah. you want to photograph them. Yeah. But they're not, somebody who you meet on the street is not more or less interesting than somebody who you might meet in Hollywood. You know, it's, it's, just, yeah. it's just the people. There's that wonderful, well, it's actually a book, but it's also an Instagram account, Humans of New York, which is, yeah. I love every day. They're photographing somebody yeah. who, at face value, you wouldn't really think you know, to know about, and then you read their story and you instantly love them and know them and respect them in general. So for me, I, I've researched you. I didn't really need to research you that much because, to be honest, I've followed your work for a long, long time. I, I, I know that you've worked a lot in fashion, but I didn't realize that you'd also done quite a lot with music videos. So I didn't know that you did the Lady Gaga Born This Way video. I didn't know that you'd done things with Kanye West. Is that something, is that as, as fun for you as doing editorial? Is that, does that provide a greater challenge? Uh, no, a different range of challenges, not greater or lesser, a different range. Um, the only music videos I've done and the only people I've worked with really, I did a, uh, a video for Bjork called Pagan Poetry. Um, I did a video for Lady Gaga, Born This Way. I did three videos for Kanye West. New Slaves, which is a video that he projected on the walls of buildings throughout the world, uh, rather than showing on YouTube. Um, then I did uh, Black Skinhead, which is all um, CGI and 3D scanning. And I did Bound 2. So those are my videos, my music videos, all five of them, whatever it is. And um, what's the creative process for something like that? Do you, let's, let's talk about like Lady Gaga or Kanye West. Do they call you and, and, yeah. and you come up with the, the creative brief? How far can you go with them? How far can you go with that record label? How far can you go for yourself it's with your own different, work? It's different for every, every person. So with Bjork, I think I met her through Alexander McQueen um, and she wanted me to do a record cover. With uh, Gaga, she phoned me up. I literally picked up my phone one day and had Gaga on the end of it. Um, and the same with Kanye, he phoned me up and said, I've just seen Born This Way, you know, can I come around and meet you? So I said, sure. 15 minutes later, I'm sitting in front of Kanye, always sitting in front of me. And so, then him and Kim Kardashian are sitting in front of you on a motorbike. Yeah, there's some years in between those two events. Okay. Um, but yes, but Kanye wanted to meet, after he'd seen Born This Way, he wanted me to do a video. Born This Way was quite difficult as a video. I was six weeks in a hotel bedroom in New York um, doing that one video. Six weeks is quite a long wow. time. Um, I wasn't, they couldn't do the Born This Way video in a normal sort of um, post-production studio because they were so worried about it being sort of uh, hacked into and, and uh, you know, released early. Really? Um, I think it's quite a problem nowadays. Yeah. Um, anyway, so they put us all in a hotel. So I was in one hotel for six weeks and basically in one bedroom for six weeks because they just made the bedrooms into sort of you know, post-production suites. So I was in one bedroom with four men for six weeks. And do um, you come up with that creative brief? How many people are there saying, we want this, we want this, we want no, this? No, actually, for Born This Way, Gaga came up with the most, most the creative brief. 
Um, it was, well, I think she, she told my son, first of all, that she wanted to be um, on another planet giving birth to a r new breed of aliens, and that was her thing. So fine, I mean, you know, how, do you, how do you start to show that? So it's normal, it, it depends on the artist, to be honest. You know, with Bjork, she said to me, um, listen to pagan poetry, it's a love song um, about the man I love, and I'll put myself through any amount of pain for him. So I gave her the camera and said, Bjork, okay, it's about love, I'm, you know, I'm not, so film yourself when you have sex with your boyfriend. So you know, they come back in different ways. With Kanye, um, it was more a conversation, more of a sort of, you know, he, he played me the songs and we talked about what I want to do. New Slaves is literally that close in. It's, it's a locked off shot of Kanye's face. So in here, and it's just him rapping at the camera. I mean, he used to come and see me at Show Studio because um, he used to stay around the in Lanesbridge, just around the corner from where we are. And he would literally come around and one time he sat in front of me and he rapped at me for 40 minutes. It's quite intense in this sort of proximity. So, um, yeah, those things are quite intense. What did he say? I can't redo you I mean, a 40 it was a minute cardio rap. <laughs> Damn it. Okay. Although I wouldn't be sitting here. Okay. Okay. Um, and do they, do, but do you get the, the um, for you as an artist, because you obviously, you have your own vision, you have your own world. Is there some, is there only so far you can go in terms of your own work and your commercial work and your commercial vision, or are you prepared? Because you've worked with some serious visionaries. Are you prepared to go as far as you're required? Or do you have a kind <laughs> of limit? Um, do you mean a moral limit? I suppose a moral limit. Yes, of course I have a moral limit. You Everybody do? has moral limits. I'm not quite sure what it is yet. Okay. Uh, I'll find it. Okay. Um, but no, of course, yes, you, 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 you use your own moral guidance. Yeah. You, know? you wouldn't do things that yeah. you find immoral. Yeah, okay. But are you asking me how far I'll go? Well, when I just think with, with something like with Born This Way, you, you, I wonder where it ends. Because the creativity is... You can do anything, and you actually, in that video, well, no, did go working, so far. Well, you're working to a quite a strong brief. I'm a Gaga knows exactly what she wants. So, Born This Way is basically the, uh, the prologue to it, which explains the story, or um, tries to explain the story. And then you have the music video after, which is a sort of you know dance routine, really. So it's quite a simple structure for a music video. Um, so the structure's there. So it's not that you're you're completely free doing anything you want. You have to make sense of what you're doing. But the prologue is actually where most of the creative work went to. The rest of the song is, is, you know, is a dance routine, really. Yeah, and it's a good one. I've watched it a few times. Okay, so fast forward now. I want to talk a little bit about Show Studio. Yeah. So explain to us a little bit about how Show... I know you launched it 10 years ago, which was ad ahead of its time. Explain to us a little bit about what you wanted to achieve with Show Studio and how it runs. Right, okay, it's a big question. Um, I launched it in 2000, so 15 years ago. 15 years ago. 15 years ago. Um, and really, I launched it mainly as a platform for fashion film, much in the same way that you, if you take us back 100 or so years, Vogue magazine, who had been using fashion illustrators, thought, well, we need a platform for this new medium of fashion photography. So that happened in 1910. Um, in 2000, I thought, there's now a new medium around, which is the internet. Um, I've always thought fashion should be shown in movement rather than as a still image. So you know, now is a way of doing it. So I started Show Studio, not completely, but mainly as a platform for fashion film. Uh, if you think about it, when a designer creates a dress, it's always to be seen in movement. The best medium for showing fashion for the last hundred years has been through the magazine and through photography. So to some degree, that's been a compromise of the designer's original vision. Um, but if you think about fashion and film, that can bring a dress much closer to where the designer originally sees it. So it seemed to me obvious that actually there was something needed there. So that's mostly why I started Show Studio, but also for lots of other reasons. I felt that the work I was doing for magazines 
was slightly, um, how best to put it, I didn't feel I was being able to express myself. There's a lot of things I don't like about the fashion industry. You know, the lack of models of any age, any different ages, of any different sizes, of any different races, of any different abilities. You know, so we're pretty much mainstream fashion magazines are pretty bland in the vision they have of women. And it wasn't a vision that it was con wasn't concurrent with my vision at all. So I wanted to do something where if I wanted to photograph somebody who was in their 60s and was black with one leg, I could do. I found her beautiful. So, you know, I, I just wanted to photograph people who I found beautiful, not just always be told, well, okay, you know, you should photograph this person. And I just wanted to do something where I wasn't told that, oh, I can't run because she's not, you know, I don't know, her nostrils aren't symmetrical or any whatever dumb reason that people come up with to, to, you know, to retouch people with. You know, I, I felt very much that um, there was lots of areas of life that weren't being reflected in fashion, and that's what I wanted to do. So it was part and of with it, sort of with it, you're showing, you're you're creating new fashion films. You're also showing really exclusive interviews with people that might wouldn't necessarily appear. I mean, for me, what I find really interesting with it is that you're creating a portal for fashion that no one's ever really done before, and it's different from something that you might have on YouTube, which I know you also have. It's your own world, and you've done it long before everybody else has done it. Have brands come to you? Are, are luxury brands wanting much more film now than, than just print? Are you noticing that? Yes. Nearly all brands now want film. And where are they putting that? On the internet, um, either on the different sites, um, or YouTube, or whatever. I mean, they're sort of putting a bit all over the place, to be honest, on their own, website, on their own websites. It's, there's a crossover point where at the moment the magazines are still supported by there being advertising in the magazines. When the magazines stop, adver adver stop having advertising, they will fade away and it'll just all be on the internet. Um, so, you know, now I get asked to do films much more than I get asked to do still photography. It's really where it's all moving to. And some of the things on Show Studio, I, I mean, one thing I've loved, which is a whole series that you've done, which is Unseen McQueen, if we're, if we're right. able to talk about Alexander McQueen, yes, if you course, wouldn't yeah. mind. Not at all. So we have the Savage Beauty exhibition that's open at the V&A now, which right. should have come to London way before it went to America, but anyway, that's my own personal quote. Okay. It's, it's open till, till the 2nd of August. Yes. Um, I've seen it twice. It's absolutely beautiful, and I'll be seeing it again. You, you were heavily involved in working with Alexander McQueen, and what I love is with Show Studio, you've got some exclusive... That's a terrible word, but some old footage of you or Solva, your ex-assistant, talking to McQueen and various things. How did that come about? Why did you choose to film Alexander McQueen long before everybody else was filming people? What was that about for you? Well, I film all my shoots. I have done since the 1980s. I've always filmed everything I've done. Um, I realized in the middle of the 80s when I was photographing Naomi Campbell, um, she was in a beautiful red coat by Yoji Amoto and I was photographing her for Yoji Moto. She was dancing to a cassette that her boyfriend, I think boyfriend, friend, let's say, <laughs> Prince had given to her. Um, and I just thought, well, this is a rather incredible moment. She was uh, moving in such an incredible, incredible way. I looked around and it was my assistant, uh, the makeup artist, hairdresser, the art director. So there were six people in the room maximum. I thought it was a shame that nobody else is gonna see this moment yeah. other than by the still images I create. But it's a shame that, you know, people can't, come and see what's going on. So I started, somebody said to me, well, you should film it. So I, ever since probably 88, I've had a film camera on a tripod at the back of my studio. Um, and I tell everybody, look, you know, this is being filmed and they're all okay with it. So, you know, that's everything I filmed. So I sort of realized kind of early on that, you know, filming my photography was important um, and filming the sessions was important. Um, and so by matter of course, when I worked with Alexander McQueen, um, I filmed, you know, that was all filmed. 
but it had never previously been released, so we released it on Show Studio. And why did you release it? Why did it take you a while to release it? Was that for a personal choice, or it just never well, felt like the right time for you? A couple of reasons. Partly because it's a, it's our old sessions. So really, I wouldn't really have any reason to go back and look at my old sessions. I don't rewatch my old sort of, you know, like a, I don't. It's not like a footballer. We're working out how to get better. You know, you don't rewatch your sessions. Um, but partly there was no reason to sort of go back. You know, when Savage Beauty came along, there was a reason. There was a reason to show perhaps some of the. Um, some of the film from behind the scenes, or some of the film of the shoots being made, some of the interviews I had with Lee. Um, virtually nobody had ever seen him actually make a dress, or you know, or see saw him on on set. So there was lots of things, lots of facets of Lee that hadn't been seen before. Why did you have such a bond with him? Why did you two work so well together? I don't know. You know, that's why. You know, why do you fall in love with anybody? You know, you fall in love with people because you need them. They need you. It sort of happens that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I read somewhere that you'd said. Yeah. Um, that you, he, you were friends in the beginning and every year he would send you a Christmas fax and That's I was right, longing yes. to know what the Christmas fax was saying or whether Happy it was Christmas. a beautiful drawing or anything really, really mad. Um, no, I love the idea of a Christmas fax. Yes, um, it yeah. was, I think it was two Christmases. Um, it just said Happy Christmas, Nick. It was okay. quite straightforward. Okay. Probably okay. had a holly leaf. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's how he first started contacting me, by sending me a fax. And how, when you went around Savage Beauty, the one in London, mm -hmm. and I know you've collaborated a lot for the book that came out. Yeah. Um, it was obviously an exciting experience for you. Did you feel more compelled to share all that footage with people more than ever before? Because it's, 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 it, for me, it's, it's exclusively amazing footage. For me, that I'm a huge fan of, of his. Yeah. And, and it's gold dust for me to be able to go on your website and actually see that no one else has got that kind of thing. For me, it's gold dust as a, as a creator, as an appreciator of fashion, but also as a kind of human being. Because he had such a dramatic story and his work was so dramatic. So for you, yeah. was it, are you, are you really joyful that you have a platform and able to be able to share that with everybody? Is yes, that, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's part of the reason that I started Show Studio was to show people what it's like inside a studio, <laughs> hence the name. Um, but so now when we do a broad, when I do a, a session, we get all the cameras in. Everybody can come and watch what I do and come and watch, you know, Kate Moss perform or Naomi Campbell. But does Campbell Kate Moss not mind that? I mean, I don't want to get Kate Moss specifically. It's not fair to talk about but But do those people, because my impression is that all those people are so close, so close, and then social media has suddenly opened everyone up a little yes, bit and changed. everybody's a little bit more prepared for some exposure and actually rather more desperate for it than they were. How has that changed for you? Do you well, see that? Well, lots of things have changed. I mean, for a start, you have to look at the, the fact that some of the models I work with, so Cara Levine, has probably got a much, much larger following than Vogue magazine. So, you know, she has like millions of followers on her Twitter and Instagram. So that changes the, 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 the power shift is, is, has happened now. So actually, you know, the Kim Kardashians, the Cara Levines, the Kate Moss, et cetera, et cetera, have a much bigger power base than the magazines that previously were giving them a power base. So that's changed the dynamic a lot. And that power base they enjoy, therefore they're happy to expose themselves. Um, I wouldn't link those two together. I think that power base they understand and they're beginning to understand it. If you have four million people who follow you every day on your Twitter or your Instagram, that gives you a certain amount of power, a certain, amount, a certain voice. Previous to that, if you were a fashion model, you would not have that. I've interviewed lots of fashion models going right back to the 1950s. Um, and one of the main things that the models like sort of um, you know, Penelope Tree and Twiggy and models from the 60s and 70s would say to me is that we had no power. We had no voice. The photographers could do whatever they want with our image. We had no say in this. Now that's really, really changed. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, it's very empowering. On the subject of social media, how do you, how have you embraced social media? What do you love best about social media? What do you, how has it opened up anything for you? 
um, I think it gives you a completely different relationship with your audience. Whereas before, when I worked for magazines, you know, the photographs would go out, three months later you'd see them, and there's no feedback from the audience. Now, of course, you know, I can publish a picture and it's out you know, instantly, and I'd immediately get feedback. So it changes the relationship you have with your audience. And no, the only way, I mean, it's actually quite a huge change. The only way people before would be able to broadcast, publish, uh, perform art is if a middleman or a middle person would say, okay, you can. So if you want to write a book, you have to go to a publisher, and the publisher says, okay, read your book. Yes, I can make money from your book, therefore you can publish. Same for a record deal, same for a film, et cetera, et cetera. Now you can put your book out on the internet and say, good people read it, and if it's not, they won't. But there's no, nobody's making money out of you in that way. So that gives you as the artist a much closer relationship to your audience. I think that's really important for your art. And that's actually one of the freedoms you have with Show Studio, is that it's your own platform and you can do what the hell you like on it. Yes. 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 Kind of. Yes. yes, it is my own platform, that's right. And in, in the tech world, what, what, how do you digest? I know you, you, you work massively with tech, in, in, with your images. You're one of the most tech genius workers of <laughs> them all. You're very kind. I'm not sure I am, but thank no, you. No, you really are. And actually, I read that, oh, an app that you love called Glitchy, which I just downloaded last night, and it's going to transform my images because it looks amazing. How do you, um, what, what apps do you love? How do you digest your information? Do you still read print magazines? Do you wake up and read the newspapers online only? How, how has it changed for you the way that you um, engage with the world? I think pretty, pretty fundamentally, no, I don't read magazines. Um, I stopped that quite a while ago. Um, I simply don't have the desire to. Um, Even the ones with all your work in? I shouldn't really say this. Um, no, less, but it's interesting because it's, you know, it is, it's in the zeitgeist. That vibe, that mood is in the zeitgeist. So even if you're... Well, I've got three children now okay. in their early 20s. Um, Emily's 22, LMA's... 21, uh, coming to 2021, and Callum 17. They've grown up in a household which was rich in magazines. They never wanted to look at them. So that says something about the zeitgeist and something like that. So yes, I tend to look less in magazines. No, I don't watch any television. Um, and I guess I do get my news mainly from the internet and not from newspapers, or not from published newspapers. So that's changed. And what's the uh, balance of time that you spend in front of a camera and in front of a computer? Well, show studio is on webcam all the time, so I'm live all day long. So most days I'm on the camera. Um, so most of my life is being broadcast. Okay, but in terms of actually working with tech to change much, your much. images and oh, so what, what, enhance you your images, in terms of actually you, you take the picture and then you're going to go and enhance it, computerize it, whatever you call it, CGI it, Let's whatever. Let's call it computerize it. But like yeah, how, how, much, um, how much is the ratio of, of raw shot versus computerized? That's a tricky question to answer. Um, I think what you're driving at is how much time do I spend in post-production? Yes. Um, a lot, because there's so many things you can do. The moment you take a photograph is just one moment on quite a long journey. The pre-production of that moment, either you know, the research you do into it, the people you work with, the relationships you form, are all incredibly important. Of course, a session when you're in a studio and creating the images in that way, that's incredibly important. And yes, that, that moment where you take the image that's incredibly important too. But what you can do with that image after is how you can separate it out into all its tones and all its contrasts, and you can find things that you can't actually see beforehand. Yes, that's important. So I look at all the parameters of that image. I'll take my image and I'll explode it in many ways I possibly can to try and understand what it is. And now I can take, um, I can take my phone, I can take the image, and I can move it around with my fingers if it was wet paint. You know, we really shouldn't be calling that photography anymore because that isn't photography. That's a new medium. And so, yes, I work in a new medium, which really isn't photography. So it's very hard to sort of quantify exactly how long I spend in post-production. Sometimes, you know, if you take an image on Instagram, send it out, it's seconds. 
sometimes you can spend two months working on one image. Really? It just depends. Well, yeah. Okay, amazing. So, and when you talk about that, that new medium, which we don't know yet, I also wanted to talk to you about someone asked you what you did and you used the word on the internet anyway, kind yeah. of generalist. Yeah. And I ask this a lot of my guests because a lot of my guests are multitasking, renaissance men, renaissance women. There isn't a word for anybody these days which are, who are, you're not just a photographer. You're not just a web host. You're not just a filmmaker. So do you class yourself as a generalist? Do you think that word gives you the clout that you deserve? I don't think it does. <laughs> I, I don't want are there clout. any other words um, that come to your mind for what you are no, now? It's interesting that you say generalist. This is a, it is a phrase I've heard before. It's not a particularly nice word, so I wouldn't want to be saying, yes, I'm a generalist, because that's a bit sort of like do everything. Uh, but it is true that the boundaries between the different arts are all completely broken down now. And I can as easily make a sculpture as I can a film as I can make a photograph. Um, I tend not to call myself a ph photographer anymore, because as I just described, I don't think, you know, the, the parameters that define photography so well for 100 years no longer define at all what I do. So you can't really say if you move the image around, you know, as, as if it was wet paint, that's photography anymore. And I think trying to describe it as photography holds back a new medium, which is much more exciting. So I think we should allow this new medium to blossom and become the one it is without being sort of held back in a way by saying, well, that's not proper photography. Well, before photography is stopped now, we all do something completely different. Um, and I think that's much more exciting. So I think, yes, you know, in, in a, a slightly unromantic and not very pleasant name is a generalist. But that's because, like many people in the sort of area I work in, the creative area I work in, you know, we do lots of different things. We've got, we have to come up with a universal name for this because it's, it seems... It's not good, is it? It's hard. I had images for a while, but that sounded like a sort of hairdresser, so I wasn't sure that was right either. <laughs> Image maker doesn't really no, say it's not enough good either. either. So. No. Okay, and then I also wanted to say, in addition to your generalist world, you've yes. just launched a kind of e-commerce platform within Show Studio yeah. with, the, with the London shop Machine A. That's right. So when we look at something like where Style.com, where Condé Nast are launching a huge e-commerce venture now, which makes complete sense. How exciting is e-commerce for you? What have been the challenges of that? And what do you hope to achieve? Are you serving the world? Are you buying yourself? Is it your own eye? Or how, how is that working? Because it's, it's a huge industry. It is a huge industry. Um, I mean, I just felt that on Show Studio, we were interviewing the designers. We were creating fashion films with the designers. Uh, we were covering their shows. Um, and it seemed fit that if you went to Show Studio, you should be able to buy their clothes as well. So it was really a simple step. And I'm friends with uh, Stavros Torellis, who runs Machine A in Soho. And I thought it was one of the most, most exciting shops I've been in. So it's multi-designer, yes, Machine yes, A. Yes, so yeah. there's new London graduates in there. So what Stavros does very well is goes to, to the colleges and sees the new designers, the new graduates. I think that's really important because, of course, the graduates often graduate with such enthusiasm and such a vision and then it gets, you know, they hit a brick wall with, you know, there's no support. And I think providing that support is really important. So um, I was very happy to be involved with that. So, you know, it's partly what we do at Show Studio by filming them and, and interviewing them. And you've employed quite a lot of them, oh, assistants who've then gone on as in photography anyway to become huge names themselves. So you're obviously very good at nurturing new talent. Yeah, I've had, a, uh, yes, I've had some good assistants. They have gone on Ruth Hogben, Craig McDean, Solvay Sunsbo, you mentioned earlier. Yeah, lots of good assistants have become great photographers or yeah. great image makers. Now they're your competitors. <laughs> no, they just have people doing images. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we um, we have so many people that we're actually going to open up for audience Q and A um, because I know we're going to have lots of questions. If you'd like to ask Nick a question, just raise your hand and someone will pass you a microphone. 
Um, and feel free to ask. We have, we have so many people. I know we have lots of questions. I know my crowd. So one over there. Uh, one over there. Thank you. Hi. Um, so you're talking about like uh, so post-production and like your shoots and stuff. But um, I was just thinking, do you know exactly how a shoot will look when you go to produce it, or do you sort of have room to play, or do you just say to a client, okay, it's going to look a little bit like this, but it might turn out like this? Um, again, it's a big and broad question. What's your name? Stephen. Hi, Stephen. It's a big and broad question. And it's different for every client. Every relationship is different. And rather than saying clients, because that sounds very kind of cold, and it's not really like that. You know, most often they're people I really care for and care about. And so they're different conversations, and they need different things. Um, to be a little more helpful in my answer, yes, you have an idea of what you have a desire. I mean, you know, the image making, photography, whatever you call it, is about realizing your desires. It's about having that thing, well, I really want to see this. You know, I can't think I've seen that anywhere, so I want. So you're actually making your desires real. Um, and if you share your desires with somebody else, if you're trying to express their desires, which is part of my role, um, it's what I do. Um, you know, that, that's, so you know what you're aiming for. You don't want to plan it out so it's exactly, you know, you don't want to draw it out beforehand because that's just boring and why bother to shoot it? So there's a certain amount of going into a session knowing that you want something very badly, you really want to, to get to this desire, but actually allowing yourself to kind of lose control and not control everything. I think that's, it's a bit of a sort of, um, I think it's a bit of a, 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 a tricky thing to do. The, the first time you take a photograph or an image, the first one is normally horrible. You know, it normally doesn't work straight away. And that's quite good and it's quite humiliating and quite, you know, everybody realizes, okay, so, and then you start to actually work at it. But that's kind of, you know, then you're really having to invent and you're really having to react and, and think on your feet. You know, it's not, you shouldn't pre-plan things so much that you know it all beforehand. You have to leave that moment for your natural intuition, your natural perception, all those things to sort of really work because that's who you are as a person. And it's getting away from that sort of way that you control things. The Surrealists were super interested in the workings of the unconscious mind. So they would write down their dreams, and they would paint out their dreams. I'm also interested in the sort of, you know, the free mind, you know, being able to react to things instinctively because that's really who you are. That's when you don't decide. I think that's the most interesting thing. So I tend to set up my sessions when I can to allow me to do that, to allow me to actually really experience things and really express exactly how I instinctively feel about them rather than pre-plan. Does that answer your question, Stephen? Good. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, next question. There was a hand at the back before. There's so many people. Um, yeah, will you just keep raising your hand so they can see you? Oh, there she is, Rosie. Okay. Okay, we're good. Okay, we'll start with that and then we'll come to you, sir. Thank you. Um, a lot of your work is very vibrant and the colours are very vibrant. Um, what what post-production apps do you use or is it all taken perfectly for, first off? <laughs> yes, it's all taken perfect. Can I catch your name, please? Yeah, it's Veronica. Hi, Veronica. Um, it's all taken perfectly the first time. Always comes out like that. No, it... Yeah, there's a whole range of different apps you can use, a whole range of different... I've always thought that colour was super exciting to work with. Um, you know, I used to uh, try and find colour that would have the same strengths as black and white. you understand what I mean by that? Um, I think when I first started photography, colour was very... The predominant aesthetic in colour in the early 1980s, late 1970s, was that of Kodachrome, which is sort of realism, if you want. I've never been a great lover of realism. Um, I always wanted colour to really stimulate me. 
And I think there's a huge, I mean, any painters out there will know, there's such a huge kind of emotional um, power that color has, just juxtapositions of colors, all those sorts of things are super important, super um, exciting. But so I'm learning about all that all the time. I'm not, I'm not trained as a painter, I'm not, I wasn't trained in that way at all. So I'm learning about it through experimentation. But I want the colors I want to do to affect me emotionally. The colors I want to create, I need them to affect me emotionally. Um, so I look at that, but that's quite an easy thing if you want. You, know, you can see when it does, when it doesn't. Thank so you. Vibrant colors, yes, I mean, that's because yeah, I like the power of color in an image. Thank you, Veronica. Kane, sir, here. Hello. 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 I can hear you. Um, Louis. Hi, Louis. Um, what I was wondering is, what's been your favorite project to date and why? Uh, <laughs> um, I don't have one. I don't have one I put in my favorite, you know, because you wouldn't. Partly because they're all different. Or the one you're most proud of, really? Either. I'm most proud of the one I'll do next, is always the answer, to be honest. They're like, you know, projects, and it's, it's like conversations. So in a way, you're talking through imagery. And any more than I would say to you, you know, Louis, which is your most, the best conversation you've had in the last 40 years, well, not your case, but the last 20 years, perhaps, <laughs> in your case, um, you know, you, you wouldn't want to name it. You know, it's always a future which is always more exciting. I, I never really want to go back and say, oh, when I photographed that for so-and-so, that was obviously a son would be incredibly um, emotional for me. Um, but the, the, I wouldn't ever say to my best or I'm the proudest. I'm always proudest of what I'm going to do next because then it's always your dreams. You know, it's always the thing you think will be perfect, always the thing you're striving for to be the best. It's always got to be the next one. So I'm always moving forward. I never really want to look back. So I didn't particularly want to talk about my images. Um, it's just because yeah, I'd much rather look forward and talk about other things. On that note, I just want to congratulate you because you're one of the first people to live stream a fashion show with Alexander McQueen's Plato's Atlantis. Am I correct? Yes. That was a visionary thing to do and everybody's following suit. Was that incredibly hard to achieve and was it very expensive to achieve or did it make complete sense to you? Um, was it hard to achieve? It took me two years to convince Alexander McQueen to do it. Um, was it expensive? It cost £100,000. Um, what, what was the third part of that? I uh, can't remember, but that's a good answer. <laughs> um, was it, yes, important, really incredibly important. Um, the fashion shows used to be for about 300 journalists and fashion buyers who were all going to sit and watch them and look fairly pissed off. Um, I used to go to McCasey and think, these are incredible spectacles. Why can't the rest of the world see these? Here, here. Um, and then when we, when we um, maybe broadcast Alexander McQueen's Plato's Atlantis, um, it went out live. Lady Gaga managed to put her single Bad Romance on the end of it, which caused the whole thing to kind of collapse. Um, but it showed the fashion world very clearly that instead of 100,000, sorry, instead of hundreds of people, they can get to hundreds of thousands or even millions of people. And that was a, a very good uh, turning point for the fashion industry. They suddenly realized that actually, you know, it wasn't just about the journalists and the buyers. There was a public out there who quite rightly want to see these things. The designers want to show them. You know, Lee McQueen was an enormous uh, artist, you know, whose pride, if you want, went to his, went to his, uh, to, went to his catwalk shows. The, um, if you want fashion theater that he made was unparalleled. So he wanted people to see that. Um, so yeah, I think it was an important thing. And now it's about 70% of all shows are streamed live. You know, that's an incredible change from where we were only five years ago. So that's a, a vast change, a sort of revolution in fashion, if you want, which has you know, different effects. I mean, one of the knock-on effects of that is that the public are choosing their favorite outfits, whereas it was the buyers who were choosing what was going to go in the shops. The public now inform the buyers of what's hot, whether you can pre-order directly with Burberry, for example, or whether you're actually just Instagramming the hell out of one thing. I watched the McQueen show live stream, sat at my desk, you know, 
loved everything, Instagram one thing, and therefore we're informing the stores, whereas before the stores were informing us. So we have huge power, again, with social media. Yeah, I think it's really changed things a lot. And for a start, you know, the, the buyers are, uh, as you say, being informed by the public. Um, I think also that it means the designers realize that this is the point where they're actually going to get through to their audience. So they're not waiting, they're not putting their money in an advertising campaign and waiting three months for it to come out in the magazines. Then you have to question why the magazine's still there. If the customer's seeing the clothes at that point, buying them at that point, why are they seeing them again another three or four or five months later? So okay. then you question the whole role of the magazine. Okay, but I do have a question. Sorry, I'll let everyone talk in a minute. Um, so when you've got your website, for example, you're putting a hell of a lot of work into a fashion film. When we've got the internet, ironically, before when we had print, those images actually were quite, were slightly more sacred because they actually do last in a strange way, whereas now everything actually gets buried and buried and buried and buried. If you're making a beautiful film like the one we saw at the beginning, how do you keep reminding your audience that that's there so that it doesn't just get made after all that work and then suddenly just disappear into the ether? Well, in the same way that you do a story for a magazine, you know, it's in the copy of the, you know, the, what is the April copy of the magazine, and then that disappears because the, you know, the, the May copy comes in the June. Yeah, it's just time okay. passes. Okay, so we have to let go of these things. I just think they're all yeah. so beautiful. It's well, that's kind of you, but sad yeah, I mean, yes, to let are. them. But you, you know, okay. you have to live your life. It moves on. Yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough. Okay, on that note, more questions from everybody else. Okay, we have one at the back, please, and then one there. Hello. Hello. Um, I just wanted to ask if you feel like there is still room for innovation within fashion photography, or is everything kind of already done and all taboos are already broken? No, I think, um, what's your name? Lena. Hi, Lena. No, I, I think that uh, absolutely it's all to be done for. You know, I mean, it's all done. No, it's all to be done. There's still so many things out there to be done. No, of course, fashion. No, absolutely. There's so much still to be done. It, don't ever believe people say, oh, it was all better in the past. I never believe people say it's all been done. It hasn't all been done. You know, the world changes. We're all subject to different and new influences. There's new ways of seeing things. You know, the, absolutely not. I think there's everything still um, to be experimented and still things to be discovered, new images to be created. You know, just take the internet, for example. You know, it's a huge cultural phenomenon, I mean, massive, un unparalleled, really, in our, in our civilization. You know, imagine the art that that's going to spawn. You know, take something like pop art, you know, which is based on consumerism. You know, the massive and incredible art that, that consumerism spawned was pop art. Now, what is the internet going to bring forth as its art? I think, you know, it's 15, 20 years old. It's in its infancy. You know, what we're going to see from, you know, the way that we all work, the way we all communicate, the art that that's going to create, you know, is going to be amazing. And, that, you know, you're just starting it. No, you, you know, you're... You're right at the beginning of an incredibly exciting and incredibly important time in, in visual history. It will so, be called no. the, the generalist movement, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> can we, we really need to find a better name than generalist. We have to, that's we why. Have to, it's just so boring. Okay, thank you, Lena. We have another lady there, please. Hi, Nick. Um, Hi. My name's Helen. I'm from Hi, Helen. the Royal College of Art. I'm just studying my MA now. And I just had a question about students, really. Yeah. Um, because when you were a student in the 80s, you know, a lot of us look back at that time, we're like, yeah, anarchy, freedom, like, it must have been great to be a student at that time. Um, but also you talked about the fact that you didn't have a camera and it was harder to get hold of these things. And now we're in an age where we have the internet, we have so many things around us, but at the same time, everything's costing us so much more money. Yeah. So I just uh, wanted to know if you had any advice or, or thoughts on that, really, for students at the moment for students no not really I, um, I mean yes I, you know, a piece of advice would be you know trust your instincts 
Um, you know, it wasn't better in the past, it isn't worse now, it's just different. Um, yes, I think education is critically underfunded. Um, I think it's shocking how we educate our, our students and it should change, so absolutely yes. Um, in that way, yes, you know, the government used to support it more when I was a student, that was better. But, you know, you have got more means, more uh, access to platforms to be able to communicate through. You know, we used to have published through magazines and it's very bureaucratic and very sort of closed. And, you know, The Face and ID were the first magazines that had any relevance to me. You know, the rest of them had no relevance to me at all when I was a student. You know, I remember going into one of the bigger magazines that remained nameless and they said, well, no, because I had pictures of skinheads in my portfolio. They said, no, we just published pictures of pretty girls. I think, you know, so there wasn't, you know, there wasn't the sort of, if you want the platforms to communicate that you have now, but it's just different. It's not better, it's not worse. It's just different. Um, absolutely, my advice to any student or anybody learning is, is trust your own opinions. You, know? you are the, the newest thing. You are the best thing. You know, trust yourself. So that's what I give you. It's a rather broad question, I'm afraid. Sorry. Um, OK, we have time for, I'm like, two more. Help. Uh, gentleman at the front. OK, gentleman there already has a microphone, and then gentleman at the front. Hi. Um, Hi. You've worked in photography and film and 3D scanning and CGI. In terms of technology, what's next for you? Is there anything you want to try out? Um, I'm really interested in artificial intelligence. Um, AI is something that I think is a really interesting area. I'm not sure that's quite answering your question. Somebody said to me that over 50, I think it's over 55% of all visits to websites are done by bots. So I'm quite interested in that. Actually, I'm working more for bots than I am for humans. And if that's the case, then maybe I should be doing fashion films for bots. So I'm kind of interested in finding out more to do with how the artificial intelligence is, what, you know, what it's actually going to mean. There was a huge conference in Brazil a couple of months ago about AI. I think all those things are really exciting, really interesting. Um, I couldn't tell you one bit of technology I'm so excited about at the moment. There's lots. I actually mean, I mean that's interesting, but in terms of film photography related to fashion, is there anything you'd... I'm, as a as a camera as a cameraman a photographer myself, is there anything you'd wanna you'd wanna try out or anything that's catching your eye? Um, nothing that I'm thinking kind of I must do that or that bit you know, it's so much already out there, you know. What you can do with an image now is so incredible. You know, I've I've been excited by old webcams, I've been excited by kind of the old technology because it corrupts the image so much. But you know, you can do so much. There's so many ways now you can get involved in the image and change it. So there's not one bit of new equipment that's coming out. I think oh, if I, you know, and it's never really been based on the equipment. To be honest, it's been based on kind of a desire. You know, it, it's a sort of funny thing as an image maker. People often talk about equipment, but it's the least interesting thing in a way with respect to talk about. Because if I was a writer, you wouldn't want to know what pen I wrote with, or what paper I wrote on, or what dictaphone I had. And if I was a painter, you wouldn't be asking about my paintbrushes or how I mix my paints. Of course, that's interesting to a certain degree, but it's not really what it's about. It's about what you have in your heart and your soul and what you have in your desire. And you know, it's about that. It's what keeps you up at night. That's what's exciting. And that's never to do with a camera, never to do with a, uh, an app. That's just to do with the sort of, you know, uh, the desire to express yourself. And you just use whatever, whatever comes to hand, to be honest. And it's often mixing things up. So have it's taking some, sorry, one second. Sorry. Yes. It's often taking different bits of equipment and mixing together and just finding out what comes. Lots of it's experimentation. So there's not one particular piece of equipment I think, oh, if I can get hold of that, that'll be really exciting. All of them are. And also, also it's often using them in the wrong way. 
So it's often trying to find their mistakes and how not to, how they don't want to be at work. With 3D scanning, it's really exciting when you use that in the wrong way because you see things you could never see. Yeah, like you did in the in the video, I guess you had these um, the effects when something goes wrong with the with the, yeah. the 3D scanning. Uh, to be CGI, honest, yeah. I like mistakes more than I like things that yeah. are perfect. You know, because I think through mistakes we see sort of if you want, you, you, there's something very human about making a mistake, and I think that's glorious. Thanks. Pleasure. Sorry. Are you, are you tempted to make, uh, you, you must have been asked countless times, are you tempted to make a feature film at all? I haven't been asked count, countless times. I've been asked a couple of times. Um, no, not really. Um, it's just a hell of a big piece of time in my life. I've got so much I want to do, so I don't really want to spend two, three years doing one particular project. I mean, the project might come along. Um, somebody asked me to make a film with Skinhead. Um, it was tempting, but I, I just don't have that. I've got so many things I want to try and do. Life is so short. So, that, you know, to devote, it's, I admire people to do, but it's, it doesn't work within my pace okay. at the moment. Yeah. Okay, we have one more, which I did say at the front, and then I know everyone's looking at me like we have to wrap up. Thank you. Hello. Hi there. Okay. Uh, I'm Eugene. Um, so, my question is is there a person from the history of art who's not alive anymore, but you would like to co collaborate with uh, and maybe understand his way of thinking? and contributed to your work? Um, I mean, all the obvious ones, you know, Michelangelo, I mean, kind of all the greats, you know, all the fucked up ones, all the ones that, you know, were doing things wrong, all the, all the ones that kind of, you know, caused confusion and, you know, made society change and made society outraged, all those ones. Yes, I'd love to work with them all, I'd love to understand their minds, um, but they're all gone and they're all the past. Is there Someone who's not visual artist. Yeah, Maybe. I mean any. I mean, yes, any of the great writers, any of the great composers. I mean, all of them. You know, I could reel off a, a, you know, thousands of names because they were great, inspiring people. Um, but you know, they're all dead and gone. And I think they should. You know, we should look forward, not backwards. So I don't tend my, to spend much of my time regretting that I didn't work with Stravinsky or, you know, whoever it was, Andre Breton or whatever. You know, of course they're fantastic, but also. Yeah, they're no longer around. So. Okay, on that note, we're going to have to end. On a rather sad note. On a sad <laughs> note, on an exciting <laughs> note. You're amazing. I love well, your you work. I'm you. so happy to have had the time to talk to you. No, thank pleasure. you so, so much. Everyone, thank you. Nick Knight, thank you. Thank, thank you. you.